Please stand with me as I read from the Word of God. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the, the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father, father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. All right. That, that applause of uh, the reading of the genealogy, uh, first time that that's ever gotten an applause for a genealogy. Maybe the first time you've ever heard a sermon preached from a, from a genealogy, but it begins our, our Advent season. Uh, Matthew uh, was, if you know about his background, was a tax collector and he was, because of that, if you're not familiar with tax collectors, uh, they were hated a lot more back then than today. <laughs> uh, and especially, you know, within Israel because um, they were considered kind of betrayers of their country and their countrymen. Uh, they had sided with Roman to collect taxes for them, uh, and they were in subject to the Roman Empire. So for a a Jew to become a tax collector was like uh, leaving your your people. 
your tribe, your nation, you know. And so I think a lot of times in the writing of the Word of God, you know, God allows in the writing of His Word for the personality of the person writing to kind of come through. And Matthew, being a tax collector and an outcast, uh, accepted to be one of the apostles of Jesus. He wasn't uh, from, you know, the family line of, of Jesus and he wasn't the sons of Zebedee. He wasn't, uh, you know, the fisherman. He was this outcast uh, tax collector that Jesus welcomed into one of his intimate 12. And I'm sure that ca- caused some uh, hardships with the 12. Like, why are you accepting this person? We, we hate them. But Jesus was a bringer together. And so I think we'll see some of that today um, in our text of the genealogy. It's a, a genealogy is like a resume. You know, when you write a resume, you highlight all your strong points, don't you? This is why I'm qualified for the job, you know. But what Matthew's going to do is he's going to highlight man's weakness. And he is going to really do the opposite of what a lot of people try to do in their genealogies. They either omit or downplay uh, the weaknesses in their genealogy what I want us to notice today is that Matthew's going to highlight the weaknesses in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at those highlights of Matthew. We're going to look over this, what Teresa read in this genealogy of 1 through 17, and we're going to look at the rhythm of the genealogy. And most of the rhythm in the genealogy would follow just a simple um, explanation of here's the father of this person and this person became the father of this person and this person became the father of this person but what Matthew does is all of a sudden he breaks that rhythm and he says he adds something and he adds something in the rhythm of of these and we're going to look at those uh, highlights that Matthew is pointing out in the genealogy and obviously he starts out, Matthew 1.1, uh, with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So he's rooting in Jesus in historical fact. It's not starting out, well, once upon a time there was this man and he fell in love and, you know, and he had this baby. And it's not that. It's not rooted in, in uh, mythological language or legend language, again, in which you would try to extol the virtues of this couple and of the lineage. You would want to make it look great and grand and grandiose. So it's not rooted in, in mythological legend. It, what Matthew is saying by saying, starting this story of, of his, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's starting with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Like He wants you to know that Jesus is rooted in history and in historical fact. And so if you read like we did through this genealogy, you're basically covering the whole story of the Bible. Most of the whole story of the Bible is contained in those 17 verses that we read. And so if you know each of these stories, you really, you've read the Bible, you know. And so here's what this story of God's history of his son, the the genealogy of Jesus Christ comes from. Obviously, it sounds like a good thing to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. These are two greats in the Bible. But what we begin to see here with Abraham 
if you know some of the story of Abraham and you know some of the story of David, is you know some of their weaknesses. Uh, you might know that, that Abraham uh, was chosen by God to build his people on. And in Genesis 12, though, what you see with Abraham is he begins to enter in to possess what God and he's believed God for. In Genesis 12, 11 through 13, he says when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, Sarai, at this time he's Abram, and his wife is Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, uh, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So immediately you see this person that God has chosen to build the people of God upon has some really unnoble traits. So if you know anything about Abraham, not only did when he went into Egypt and with the princes of Pharaoh and then Pharaoh said, Woo, look at this beautiful woman. You know, maybe she can become my wife or one of my wives. All these things happen in Genesis 12 to where God doesn't let that happen. He doesn't let it, but not due to Abraham. It has nothing to do with Abraham. He's just really shown here as a coward that is willing to let his wife be put in this kind of situation and, uh, and it's not a good situation. Then later on in Genesis 20, you see the same thing. Uh, Abraham's now journeyed from Egypt and gone into the territory of the Negeb, and he's lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourns in Gerar. And there in Gerar, uh, there's this king, and his name is Abimelech, King Abimelech of Gerar. And, and he does the same thing there. He tells him, oh, this is my sister, and... Uh, and so he takes her, you know, because she's beautiful, like you read in Genesis 12. And he's going to like, he's, he's, she's in the process of becoming one of his wives. And God strikes him with all these things. It has nothing to do with Abraham protecting her. He's not protecting his wife. So just right off the bat, you realize that uh, Jesus being the, uh, in the lineage of the line of Abraham, that there's not all these strengths there. You begin to see that uh, Abraham deceives the Pharaoh in Egypt. He deceives Abimelech and the Negev to try to protect his own life. He's a scaredy cat. He's a coward. And he's willing to put his own wife in the hands of another man to save his own skin. I mean, that's really clear and evident in the story. And the Bible reveals that story of the weakness of man. And Matthew is definitely going to point this out. The first thing that he's going to say about the uh, the rhythm of this lineage of Abraham uh, having Isaac and Isaac having Jacob. When he gets to Judah, he says Judah and his brothers. So that's the first highlight there from the rhythm of the genealogy. He says Judah and his brothers. So, I mean, they don't have anything to do with the lineage. The lineage goes from Judah to Perez, okay? But he adds Judah and his brothers. What is he pointing out there? Well, he's pointing out a whole story there if you read the history of, of God in, in Genesis. I mean, it's a story of, you know, how, how were these brothers, did they come about? Jacob ends up falling in love with Rachel and gets tricked by Laban, uh, his uncle, into marrying Leah first, who is the older, elder, unattractive woman. The Bible describes her as having... 
uh, lazy or soft eyes. We don't know whether her eyes were crossed or whether that was just an idiom for saying she was not attractive because it's in comparison to Rachel who is beauty, beautiful in appearance and all this and he's in love with her. He gets tricked into marrying Leah and he's mad and then he ends up, you know, making a deal again with Laban to work for another seven years so that um, he can uh, have Rachel as his wife, but Rachel can't have kids, so Leah starts having all these kids, and Leah has these kids, and she says, now maybe my husband will love me. So you see right away there's this, uh, the brothers are not brought up in a good situation. Uh, she wants the love, Leah wants the love of her husband, and he, she doesn't have it. He's in love with Rachel, and yet Leah's the one that God sees her lack of love by her husband, and he opens up her womb, and she's cranking out these sons, uh, and she gets down to the, you know, one son, the second son, the third son, and every time she's saying, perhaps my husband now will love me. Perhaps my husband will even look at me with affection. Perhaps now my, and then after the fourth son, she has Judah. If you know the story, she has Judah, and she basically gives up on the love of her husband. He says, I will name him Judah, which means to praise the Lord. And she goes and she goes, the Lord loves me. The Lord is looking at me. And she, she's like, I need to love, love my husband. You know, I'm accepting the love of God. He's the one that's opened my womb and blessed me with these sons. Whether he loves me or not, God loves me, and I'm going to praise the Lord. And she named him Judah. And Judah's in this line here. But Judah has brothers. And eventually, by God's miraculous uh, work, uh, Rachel does have some children, and they end up being Jacob's favorite. And then we, we read the story of Joseph, so you should know about Judah and his brothers. He's pointing this out. But what happens with Judah and his brothers? Well, they don't like Joseph. He's the one with the favored uh, son. Jacob loves him so much more than the others, and it creates all this jealousy. And do you know the story? This is the history of Jesus. You know, this is the history of pointing out uh, the genealogies, and, and by Matthew saying, and his brothers, he's like, look at this story. Look at this story. Do you guys remember what the brothers did? Do you remember even how the brothers came about? You know, not just between these two women, but then them getting their handmaiden slaves to have kids for their husband so they can still multiply. That's how these brothers came about. It was pretty messy. And then what do they end up doing, these brothers? They finally say, hey, here comes the dreamer. Let's uh, take him with his fancy robe and all of his dreams of us bowing down to him and all these things, and let's kill him. And one of the brothers speaks out, let's not kill him, let's make money off of him. This is the brother, this is the story, this is what Matthew is saying and his brothers. He's pointing out. They sell him for some pieces of silver, sell him into slavery as a slave, and then they dip his, his great robe, uh, his mighty robe of many colors into blood and bring it to Jacob and, and just show it to him, like deceive their own father who he loved this son so much, and it breaks his heart, and they don't even care. Cold and callousness of man, you know, watching their own father weep and grieve over a son that's not been killed by a wild animal. That's what they made it look like. But they've been sold into slavery by his own brothers. This is the heritage that you, O oh great Israel, Matthew is saying, come from. You come from the weakness of man, and you come from the great grace of God. And the Advent season is about the gift of grace in Jesus, and that it does not come uh, from the weakness of man. 2 Corinthians 4 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
And that's what this lineage does. It shows that the surpassing power belongs to God, this genealogy of Jesus. It belongs to God and not unto man. Nothing about the glory of man here. It's about the glory of God and his amazing grace in this lineage. So at the end of this story of Joseph and his betrayal, you read at the end in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph forgives Judah and his brothers uh, for selling him into slavery. And, he, and all the suffering he went through, he sees this and he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you to his brothers, you meant evil against me. I get that. But God meant it for good to bring about that many peoples, many nations should be kept alive as they are today. So because Joseph was sold into slavery, not that his brothers aren't held responsible for it, they are. Their guilt there, he's, he's forgiven him. He sees that. But he sees God working in all that suffering in his life. Uh, just like Jesus sold for pieces of silver, so was Joseph sold into slavery. And you see the imagery of God betrayed by his own brothers. Jesus betrayed by his own brothers, his own Israelite Jewish people and family betraying him for pieces of silver like Judas did. There's so much symbology uh, 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 there, but yet it's showing the weakness of man and the glory of God. The next thing mentioned in Matthew 1-3 after Judah and his brothers is all of a sudden, instead of just saying Judah the father of Perez and Perez the father of Hezron, it interrupts and it says Perez and Zerah so what does Zerah have to do with it? He's not part of the lineage. And then by Tamar, the first mother is mentioned. The first woman is mentioned. And it's unusual to actually mention women in a genealogy, but Matthew's going to do it several times, we're going to see here. And he interrupts it by saying Tamar. Now, Tamar, the reason why Zerah is mentioned in this story is because Tamar had twins. And Tamar had twins by a sexually immoral relationship with her father-in-law. And Matthew is pointing that out here. Or he could just go right on and kind of skip over that. Instead of skipping over that, he's actually expanding it. Like, look at this story. You guys, you know, think we're all from a great lineage. This is where we all come from as a nation. But he points this out. And Matthew Henry in his commentary says, he talks about this degenerate conduct of Judah um, and Tamar is neglected by him, promised another, her husband dies, these tragedies promised another son so she can have children. Judah never delivers on that, and then she has to pose as a prostitute, secretly gets jo Judah to sleep with her, and she has these two twins. This is the lineage of where Perez and, and Zerah come from. So this chapter in Genesis 38, if you read this history of this story, which the Jews were very familiar with, their Bibles, they knew this. This chapter gives an account of Judah and his family and the degenerate conduct of, of Judah. Uh, it seems like a wonder that of all Jacob's sons, God would choose, the Lord would choose, the, you know, God would choose the Lord to spring out of the tribe of Judah. But God shows this. And this Matthew Henry commentary mentions that his choice is of grace and not of merit. See, man can never merit the goodness of God by his own goodness or his own works. And he's taken, it seems like, the worst of the worst and saying it to magnify his own grace. Like what it's going to take is the, 
is out of the weakness of man, it's going to take my grace and the gift of my grace to bring about redemption. It's not going to be from the goodness of man. And Matthew's pointing this out. So he emphasizes this. The next mention, genealogy is running fine, is another woman. In Matthew 1.5, it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Remember the story of Rahab? It's mentioning all of a sudden, throwing in another mama here. But these mamas, you know, here isn't somebody that the Israelites would have liked to remember in their lineage uh, because uh, Rahab lived in Jericho, and Jericho was a Canaanite city that was uh, destroyed by Joshua in Joshua 2, and they were Canaanites. Uh, They were not to intermix with them, intermarry with them, because they were of a different faith. It would be like us today in the New Testament saying, you know, don't marry an unbeliever. You're not to marry unbelievers. If you're a believer in Jesus, you should marry another believer in Jesus. That's what this was like. You were marrying outside of your race. And what it's showing there is that Rahab is a Canaanite woman who was an enemy of of Israel, and yet she married into the lineage here. So you have a Canaanite woman, and you also read about her character there. What was she in that city? A prostitute. That was her line of work. So not only do you have a Canaanite, you have a Canaanite woman who's living a life of prostitution. And so Matthew's pointing out, he actually stops the lineage there, and he says, by Rahab. Hey, remember Rahab? Remember where she came from? Remember God's grace toward her? Do you remember her faith? And then the next uh, mention is... uh, Bo- Matthew 1 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Who is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite woman. Here's another foreigner coming in uh, to the lineage of the Christ, the Messiah here. And everybody knows this because this is the lineage of David. And they all worship David. They all worshiped Abraham. These are the descendants of Abraham. And these are the descendants that lead up to their great King David that they love so much. And so we read that there's a whole book after the story of Ruth, named after Ruth. She's the third woman mentioned here in the lineage, the third mother. Why? What stands out in this history? Who is she? Why is there a whole book of the Bible named after her? Well, in Ruth 1, 3, we read that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, had died, and she was left with her two sons in this foreign land. Her two sons took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. God's pointing not to, and these two women especially, Rahab and Ruth, is not pointing to a purity of their lives or a purity of their race, their bloodline, but he's pointing to the nobility of their faith. When you look at Rahab's faith, it is phenomenal. She is a Canaanite prostitute woman, and she has these spies, and she says, man, your God is going to wipe out our city and our people, and I want you to spare me and my family when it happens. This is faith before it happens. You're the people of God. I believe in your God. Your God is going to wipe out our God and wipe out our town, and I have faith in what's going to happen right now, and how can I be spared and my family? This prostitute spares not just herself, but her whole family in Jericho, her faith. 
And you look at Ruth. She's a Moabite woman, married. Her husband dies. She's with Naomi. All of their men have died. They have no way to make a living. Naomi's going to go back home, and Ruth goes, I'm sticking with you to the end. Your God's my God. Your people will be my people. I'll never leave you. Orpah's like, well, I'm going back to my people. You know what I mean? Because Naomi's just, get away from me. Everything, death's all around me. My husband's died. Your husbands have died. I'm going back home. Just leave me. You don't want to be around me. My life's no longer sweet, Naomi. My life is bitter. Call me Mara. And, 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 and Ruth is like, I'm with you. Whether you're bitter or to the end, I'm with you and your God. You know, she shifted her faith. It's a, it's a matter of not the purity of, of a, a, a lineage, a bloodline, but a purity of faith in God. And Matthew's pointing this out. Um, and so we get to the great David here, you know. Um, Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. But when he gets to uh, Matthew 1, 6, and he said, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of, rather than saying by Bathsheba like he had done every other time, by Tamar, by, um, you know, Ruth, and, and by Rahab, he says, by Uriah, the wife of Uriah. So Uriah's in this thing. Like, is that a, is that a slight of uh, Bathsheba? Like, well, why don't you put Bathsheba in there, the wife of Bathsheba? Why don't you mention her name? Why does he purposely, like, not even say the wife uh, Bathsheba, but say the wife of Uriah? Ooh, this is not a slight of Bathsheba, but a slight of David. This is... This is Matthew pointing out, who is Uriah here? Why would you say the wife of Uriah in this, in this genealogy? Why wouldn't you just say uh, Bathsheba? And he's pointing it not to snub Bathsheba, but he's pointing it out to insult David and his human sin and his human weakness and what he did to Uriah. Uriah was the Hittite. He's a foreigner too, but these foreigners got with David. He's known as one of David's mighty men. What the mighty men did was they, they, when David was fleeing Saul in the worst kind of condition, a king after you with all of his resources, just chasing you down and hounding you for years, constantly running from the law, a fugitive from the king who was with David. Who helped him fight his battles? Who lived with him in caves? Who left their homes to stay with him? The mighty men did. They were warriors, and Uriah is listed as one of his mighty men. He lived with David in caves for years. Uriah is mentioned here. Loyal to David to the end. Sacrificial to the end. The cost of his character is just amazing, clear to the end. And when you get um, to the story of Uriah the Hittite, you begin to see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 what David does now as king with Uriah. He's not out fighting battles right now. He's got, you know, the commander of his army who's leading the great Uriah, a mighty man of, of valor and warrior. And David's staying at home in Jerusalem and letting them fight his battles now against Ammon and the Ammonites and uh, he's other tough warriors risking their life for David and his kingdom still. And what does he do? He looks down and sees Uriah's wife and ends up taking his wife for himself. This is like his best friend. You hear about these relationships all the time with best friends taking the other person's wife. 
Well, it happened right here. And he takes him, takes her, and then after sleeping with her, he's going to cover it up. It's okay. But then she becomes pregnant. So now his adultery is being made known, and Uriah is off to battle, so there's no way he could have impregnated her. So David begins scheming further, and he brings Uriah back and says, Hey, how's the war going? Eat some with me. Hey, go home. Sleep with your wife. And he doesn't. He's so noble, he just goes outside, and he sleeps with the servants on David's porch. And David goes, Why don't you go home? I brought you home. Go home and rest. Because if he can sleep with his wife, then when Bathsheba's pregnant, you know, then he can say, Oh, well, you can remember when you came home and slept with your wife, you know. And so he's trying to cover it up. And Uriah is too noble to do it. He's like, my men are out fighting in war, war. I mean, the ark of God is in a tent right now. We don't even have a place for it. He's concerned about God and the things of God and his other men suffering. And David's done, not, not caring about anything but covering up his own sin. I mean, you see this in the story. When, when Matthew is saying the wife of Uriah, he wants you to look into the story of Uriah and remember forever in the lineage of what the weakness of sin can do in your life. It's crouching at the door and it was crouching at the door of David when he walked out on his balcony and it reached up and it snared him like a big lion and devoured him in his lust. And he went not only into adultery, he's then called out by the prophet as the murderer of Uriah. Now how he did it was he, he gave, when he got, and then he tried to get Uriah drunk and he got him to drink a lot. Now he'll go home and sleep with his wife because he said stay for another couple of days. He th- really thought he'd get him to do this. He still wouldn't. And so he hands Uriah a letter to go take to Joab. And in that letter it says, basically, kill Uriah. Go get in the heat of the battle against the greatest warriors of Ammon. And when you're in that heat of the battle, pull back from Uriah and let him be killed. And he takes that letter, doesn't open it, doesn't even look at it, fully trusts David to give this to the commander of Joab, and it's a death sentence for him. And he gives it to Joab. This is the story that Matthew's trying to point out. A real great lineage that you really want David in your lineage, right? The great mighty King David who slayed Goliath. You want him in your lineage, right? Matthew goes, not so great, an adulterer and a murderer. And that's what he wants you to see. That's the one point he wants you to point out here when he says the wife of Uriah. He's trying to get you to look at this story. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He, he interrupts it with the, the deportation to Babylon because he wants them to know, Israel, you have failed. You have failed in every way to do and to pursue what God wanted you to do as a nation. And the great Babylon has come and wiped you out in utter defeat, destroyed the temple of God, hauled all the artifacts from the temple, the most holy articles of God, off to Babylon, and you've been utterly defeated and failed in the purposes of God, but for God's grace. This is a total annihilation of the weakness of man meriting the goodness of God. Matthew is saying, you're all outcast and worse than me as a tax collector. And what we descend from is the weakness of man and the sin of man like every other nation. We have failed our God, and we've failed him even more miserably because we knew better. We knew the things of God. And this is Matthew pointing out these things in this lineage of this Advent season. This 
is where Jesus comes from. And he concludes. He started out with Matthew 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 1.17, he says this. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportion, deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What's that verse in there for? What's Matthew 1.17? What's Matthew saying? What's he pointing to? What's he trying to highlight there? These groupings of 14 generations. Why is he dividing it that way? A lot of uh, scholars and experts studying the Bible will point out that he's pointing towards the Sabbath. He's not pointing uh, an Israelite, a Jewish person reading this would see that he's not pointing to groupings of 14s, but groupings of two sevens and two sevens and two sevens, that he's grouping Sabbaths, he's grouping years together. And what he's saying is, after 14, 14, and 14, after six sevens is the seventh seventh, and out of that seventh seventh comes Jesus. Matthew is highlighting and pointing to Christ as the Sabbath rest of God and not just any Sabbath rest of God but he's saying it's the Sabbath of Sabbaths and this is in the Bible in Leviticus 25 we read when we understand about what the Sabbath of Sabbaths is it was this celebration it was called the year of Jubilee and what Matthew's pointing to is in the arrival of Jesus the Advent season The year of jubilee has come. Have you ever waited a long time for something? You know, and hoped for something, and then it finally had arrived? For me, as like a little kid at Christmas, you know, you kind of put in your Christmas list, and you wanted this thing so bad. You know, like we didn't have a bike. We had, I had had, uh, six boys, you know, and my family had five older brothers, and so we had one bike uh, between us. And so whoever, you know, was out on the bike, the bike was gone. If you walked out and one of your brothers had taken the bike, the bike was gone. And this bike was broken down. It, it had stripped out the front of the wheel with these two bolts on it. And so you couldn't bolt the, the wheel on. And so it just set, the forks just set on a stripped out uh, axle. And so you couldn't bolt strips on. So if you went over a bump and your bike went up, your front tire would roll off and you would wreck. So you had to be real careful and always keep weight on the front axle. And there were a time that I hit a bump in the sidewalk and, and I wasn't thinking. I was just having all fun riding, going over to my friend's house. And it went boom and it went up like that. And my tire went out and I went down on the axle and did a front head dive right on my chin <laughs> in, in the, on the sidewalk and tore my chin open and blood everywhere, you know. And so I grew up. Uh, you know, fairly tough with these, these rough things happening. Of course, no helmets. We didn't even know what those were. And so, and, and it was just, you know, it was fun as I look back on it now. <laughs> uh, but back then, so, you know, you long for this, like every year you put in that, can I get a bike, Dad? You know, can I have a bike of my own? All my friends have bikes. Don't all your kids tell you that? All my friends have it. All my friends have it. I would say that. My, most of my friends did. They had their own bike. I can go, I can ride, you know, you know, he's a long, long way. And that, nothing ever came quick in our house. Most of the time, my dad said, well, you can start mowing lawns, saving up your money, and you can buy a, a bike by next summer. And, uh, but have you ever longed for something, and then it finally came through, and the gift finally came? And you're just like, yes. You know, it finally has arrived. Well, the, the people of Israel 
had waited for thousands of years for the promise of the Messiah. And then they had gone through 400 years after this deportation into Babylon and captivity and one empire after another ruling over them and then 400 years of silence. They didn't have a prophet. They didn't have anybody. And then what we read this morning, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths. John the Baptist comes on the scene. The first voice in over 400 years, like that hope is coming. That hope, I'm making a way for the hope. The Messiah is coming now. And it's not out of the greatness of man. It's out of the timing and out of the gift of God is now arriving on the scene. That's what Advent is about. It's about the coming of Jesus. So Jesus is that Sabbath of Sabbath. He is that year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25 where what would happen in this year? All captives got to go free. Slaves got to go free. And all your debts were forgiven. You couldn't carry on a debt after this year of Jubilee. If you had a debt, you better try to collect before the year of Jubilee. They even paid off debts according to how many years were left in the, in, until a Jubilee year. Their whole lives revolved around this Jubilee year, how they had land, how they sold land, how they sold land, and if they possessed that land, when the year of Jubilee came along, you could buy your land back and get your land back after somebody had owned it for that many years. It was a time of... Re- ultimate redemption the year of jubilee and god set that up and it was the sabbath of sabbaths it was the seventh uh, sabbath of sabbaths that 50th year every 50th year coming around was that great year of jubilee and so what happens when isaiah comes along in isaiah 61 1 through 2 he's prophesying the spirit of the lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor here's the gospel He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what Isaiah is prophesying there? To proclaim the Jubilee year. To proclaim the year of the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And so what does Jesus read when the scroll is handed to him? The scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. Isaiah 61. This is what he reads. In Luke chapter 4, 18 through 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is reading it now, and he's not pointing to somebody else. He's pointing to himself. And he's saying the year of Jubilee has arrived because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is here. Woo-hoo! A year of jubilee, Matthew is saying, has arrived despite the weakness of man. God's salvation rests solely in God's grace alone and not in the merit of man. Matthew is highlighting in this genealogy uh, today that we have read that God's gospel of grace has arrived fully in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, the seventh seven is here We are saved by grace alone and not by our own merit. All glory. What does it mean? No glory to man. All glory goes to Jesus. All glory goes to God who gave us the gift of His only begotten Son. Let us worship Him this Christmas season with revived wonder and awe of His glorious grace. Amen? Amen.
We'll continue to worship, celebrate communion together. Do you want to grab your communion elements? In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. Partake of the bread. manner he took the cup he said this is the blood of the new covenant given for you for the remission of sins do this and as you do do this in remembrance of me partake of the cup let us worship together